I don't like this place. This ain't no nice place. I don't like this place. Listen, I don't like it no better than you. But we gotta keep her until we get a stake. Come on, George, let's go. Let's get out of here. It's mean here. Shut up and get to work. Here comes that skunk again. Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we watched the 10th and final 1939 nominee of Mice and Men, which also means that we will tell you who should have won Best Picture at the end of the episode. Yes, it does, he said, opening up a lot of tabs. <laughs> Well, first we have to review this movie. Yes. And I kind of, I have two angles of approach on this one because I don't feel qualified to like fully get into Lenny. Right. (laughs) There's some stuff there that just generally I feel weird about, but I don't really feel like I have the expertise to talk about people with mental disabilities. I feel much more qualified to talk about the acting in this movie, which I also don't like very much. Interesting. It isn't just a totally dog shit movie because it's still of mice and men, right? Right. There's good, enjoyable stuff here. But one of the things I have enjoyed in 1939, even as it's turned out that 39 was not quite the year we thought it was. Well, it's not quite the year that it has been hyped up to be. Right. It's not that we like assumed it was going to be great based on other information. Right. But I was kind of holding out hope, I guess. But mostly, I think what did feel like kind of shifted this year was there was a lot less of the like very 30s actorly acting, like that sort of stage acting on screen. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of that in this movie. And I don't think it works very well with Of Mice and Men particularly. Wow. See, I feel like the acting in this film is fantastic and is kind of the only thing that I have to talk about because I mean honestly it's a competently made film but the reason that it is a film and not a stage play and it is based on the stage play of the novel it wasn't an adaptation of the novel but you know the play was written by Steinbeck so the script is great but the film itself is like yeah it's fine yeah I mean, I, there's nothing to talk about in terms of cinematography whatsoever. Or like directing choices, or it is a cut and dry. These people got on set and did some acting, and they did it. Yeah, I think there is good acting in this film, but I think like, I really didn't like Burgess Meredith in this. Really? Yeah, he seemed very tra- trained, very... I don't know, maybe I was just in a bad mood or something, but there was something that just didn't feel very lived in about his performance. It felt very performer-y, and it didn't really seem to jive with the character in particular that, I don't know, that George sort of felt that stilted, professional? I don't know. See, for me, I don't disagree with you that he felt performative. But for me, it made sense that George was that way because he's been having to cover for Lenny for, we assume, years as they go from town to town and job to job and that there's always some sort of misunderstanding with Lenny. I mean, his character very much has these moments away from everyone but Lenny where he's saying, we have to do this and say this, and you don't say anything, and I'll do this. So for me, it felt actually very appropriate for the character. I think it's that that didn't really drop away when he was away. Yeah, I don't know. 
I don't think it was like awful, but it was like, oh, this is not going to be my favorite adaptation of Of Mice and Men because I just don't like the George very much. Do you have a favorite adaptation of Of Mice and Men? Uh, you know, no. <laughs> okay. I was just curious because I was like, oh, is there another one that is better? Because I frankly don't have any great attachment to this story. I like Steinbeck a lot, but I've never actually read this one. I think this was one I had to talk about in high school, but didn't actually read. (laughs) Yeah, I know those books. (laughs) I think as a result, I probably saw the 92 version at some point, but I have no real memory of it beyond that that exists, which I learned while Googling around for this movie to watch it. I was like, oh, yes. Yeah, that is a film that happened was they did this in the 90s. I don't have any particular like, oh, yes, of course, the canonical of Mice and Men is X. This one just felt very of the 30s to me in a way where I was like, oh, we're going to learn how to do some of this a little better. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if you had a script that was not written by Stenbeck, this movie would have been really not very good. But Steinbeck is a great storyteller. He's very good at pacing. He's very good at making people into symbols of things that are wrong with humanity at large without necessarily making those characters not sympathetic. Yes. It, to its credit, doesn't ever feel like it's dragging to me. No. The phrase that came up in my notes several times was unstoppable tragedy engine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. (laughs) Yeah. Everything that builds, it's, oh God, of course, in the worst way. (laughs) Like, in the worst way for the characters, not in the way where you're, like, tired of how convoluted and contrived this all feels. Right. In the, like, oh yeah, inevitably this terrible thing will happen shit. Yeah. And we should probably do the plot. There's sort of weirdly little plot, but we should probably do it for people who, like me, didn't ever read of Mice and Men when they were supposed to. Cool. So yeah, George and Lenny are two friends who grew up together. I guess they're in their like 20s. It kind of doesn't matter. George, who is played by Burgess Meredith, is sort of the brains of the operation. And he very much thinks that he is, too. <laughs> Lenny, played by Lon Chaney Jr., is a very large man who is very strong, but has some sort of mental disability or developmental disability. It's never stated, but essentially he, in a number of ways, acts like a young child. It's during the Depression, and I guess they're like farmhands or migrant workers or like are you a migrant worker if you're born in the place where you work yeah i mean i think so because they are moving from town to town okay so it's not like you're an immigrant got it yeah yeah and we meet them when they are going to a job at some farm in california and we learn that the reason that they had to leave their last job and the town that they left was because Lenny had touched a woman's dress because it looked soft in a way that was, we assume from how it's presented, entirely innocent, but that he was essentially accused of rape, which they don't say outright. Yes, but I mean, the movie does start with them literally getting chased by pitchforks. Right. Which it seems like it has gotten interpreted as more than just touching a woman's dress, but it's also there's nothing throughout the film that suggests that Lenny is really even capable of thinking of a woman that way. Right. 
George has this story that he tells Lenny about the farm that they're going to get, where they're going to have land in their own place and everything that they plant, they're going to get to keep. And George is really excited about them having rabbits that he will get to tend. And this is actually the inspiration for, is it the Abominable Snowman in Looney Tunes? Um, That character that does, I will hug him and squeeze him and name him George. I don't really know what the character is. Yeah, I, um... Oh, it is. It is the Abominable Snowman. But his name is apparently Hugo? Anyway, it's based on Lon Chaney Jr.'s performance of Lenny in this movie. Because he talks about wanting to hug rabbits a lot. They get to the farm where their new job is and immediately run up against the son of the owner of the farm, who is a total asshole and whose name is Curly. That sounds right. Who is just a jerk to everybody and apparently has some issue with people who are tall because he's short, though I didn't really see that he was that much shorter than any of the other people other than Lenny. There's a lot going on there. (laughs) It seems like the deck is pretty stacked for this guy to just be an asshole. Yeah, he does have a height thing. He also has a thing about people talking to his wife. Yeah. He also just seems to have a thing about wanting to pick fights with people. He's just an asshole. His wife, who is wildly neglected and super bored, flirts with everybody on the ranch, but not like... I wouldn't say even flirts with them. It's really she's just trying to talk to humans. Yeah, she like 1930s flirts with them, which is she attempts to have conversations with men who aren't her husband. Right. And she's kind of obnoxious, but I think, again, she's still sympathetic because you feel bad for the fact that she is neglected by this super controlling asshole who like goes to the movies on Saturday night and leaves her at home. Yeah. There's some other ranch hands on the farm. There's Candy, who has one hand and has an old dog that he has been raising for a long time and who apparently smells bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's Slim, who's like the cowboy of the ranch. (laughs) And there's Crooks, who is the only black farmhand who seems to be the intellectual of the group sort of by just circumstance because he's not allowed to stay in the bunkhouse he has to stay by himself in the barn so he reads all the time because he's lonely yeah in a scene that is really really fascinating yeah (laughs) his big scene with lenny that i guess we're getting to candy overhears them talking about the farm offers to go in with them it's candy that does this right i'm not insane yeah (laughs) and uh gives george a bunch of money uh to sort of try and buy this small farm that they're all dreaming of and then there's sort of They're going to work in the farm for a month to get enough money to try and get almost enough to talk this family into selling their farm. One Saturday night, everybody except for Lenny, who can't go into town, uh, Candy, whose husband will not take her into town. No, Candy's the one-handed farmhand. Her name should be Candy. It totally should. It's May. May is in town, I guess? No, she's not. No, she's there too. I don't know why Whatever. And Crooks, the black farmhand, are still on the farm. That was a confusing list because we stopped right in the middle of it. But the important thing is that Lenny wanders in not knowing that Crooks is being segregated from the rest of the farm for being black. 
just sort of wanders in to talk to him. Well, he goes in to see the puppies. Right. That are also living in the barn. Right. And the two have this fascinating conversation that I think is particularly fascinating to me because I just got done listening to the new season of You Must Remember This, the sort of film history podcast about like the history of actual Hollywood instead of watching all the fucking movies, which is honestly maybe a smarter way to do it because then you don't have to watch all these movies. (laughs) But the new season of You Must Remember This is about Song of the South. Oh, God. And the second episode that just got released was a very long sort of biography of Hattie McDaniel, who we just got done watching in Gone with the Wind. And it's very fascinating in the context of that discussion about how race was and wasn't allowed to be explored in the 1930s in Hollywood to watch this film where on the text a black actor kind of gets one over on everybody else is the intellectual is the smart one has sort of figured out the whole structure of the world and is attempting to tell it to people who won't listen he's also so much less naive than everyone else yeah because even though lenny has the developmental capacity of someone who is much younger Candy, who seems to be totally mentally able, is still pretty naive and and childlike, despite being 60 or something. I mean, he turned over all of his life savings, which was like 350 Depression-era dollars, to these people he met earlier that morning. Yeah. He's very, very trusting. He's also, there's a like clear desperation to Candy. I actually think that that's one of the best perform. I keep saying one of the best performances. I think I'm really just like not thrilled with Burgess Meredith and I'm not thrilled with May. And that's a lot of screen time to not be thrilled with. That's that's fair. Yeah. But a lot of the performances I think in this movie are quite good. And Candy is one of them that I think that there's this tinge of desperation to his naivete where it's not necessarily that he doesn't know better. It's that he doesn't know a better option than going all in on this stuff. Mm, Yeah, that makes sense. That's the thing that Crooks is arguing, is that he's seen that you're never going to get out. He's seen everybody have these dreams, think they're going to get out. The system is rigged against them. They're going to be here working as farmhands forever. And both of them understandably don't take that well. And then May arrives to try and figure out what's going on with another plot point we missed, which was that her jerk husband was such a jerk, Lenny crushed his hand. He tried to beat up Lenny, who's like a foot taller than he is. And so instead of beating him up, Lenny grabs the jerk husband's hand to stop him from punching him and crushes it. Yeah. And they sort of blackmail him into silence by saying that he's going to say he broke his hand in by putting it in a machine, because otherwise everybody on the farm is going to know that a mentally disabled man beat the hell out of him, or destroyed his hand. That works until May comes in trying to figure out what's really going on, and almost immediately figures it out. She then sort of goes and uses it to pick a fight with her husband, Curly, right? That's his name. God, he's so boring. I don't know why his name is Curly either. Like, he has straight hair. (laughs) Yeah. It feels like a very Curly move to have called himself Curly. It does, yeah. Gone like, that's my nickname. (laughs) My nickname's Big Jim. Yeah. It's the... (laughs) It's the Dana Carvey bit about how Sting named himself Sting. Just like, God, what a nerd do you have to be? 
to just tell everyone in your life your name is Sting. Um, but then somehow you pull it off. Anyway, she confronts him with it and uses it to make him feel terrible the way that she feels terrible. And he kicks her off the farm, basically says they're going to get divorced. Though it's implied that, like, she could stick around and he'd probably take her back because this has, like, happened a couple times. It's also kind of implied she probably would come back if the thing that is about to happen didn't happen. Yes. Which is she goes out to the barn and finds Lenny out there having just accidentally, unintentionally killed his puppy and being so desperate for somebody to talk to about something kind of forces him to stick around and listen to her whole life story, which makes Lenny very nervous because he both has just killed a puppy and because George has repeatedly told him not to hang around this girl because he'll get in trouble like he got in trouble in the last town. But as part of the long, long conversation, he mentions how much he loves rabbits because he loves stroking soft things. And she offers to let him stroke her hair, but then his hand gets caught in her hair and she starts screaming and he starts freaking out about her screaming and accidentally breaks her neck and kills her. Um... So that's bad. And really, really sad. Yes. And we are now in the inevitable, super tragic part of our story, because there's now pretty inevitably going to be a new lynch mob against Lenny. And this time they kind of have to catch him. This time George doesn't feel comfortable letting Lenny just sort of escape off into the world after killing a woman understandably, but he also doesn't feel like there's much of a future ahead of him if he gets caught and gets brought back, even if he does somehow manage to stop the lynch mob from doing the thing that's in its name. So he decides to take after the example of an earlier part of the film where one of the farmhands goes out and shoots an old dog in the back of the head. An old dog that is Candy's dog. And they spent like a good 10 minutes with this guy telling Candy that the dog needs to be put down. Yeah. And it's actually a really, really sad scene. It super is. And it's also like one of the things I thought of when I was saying Candy is a good actor. And it's right after that that he is like, here, take all my money because I got to get out of here. So uh, you're right. It is definitely a desperation. George takes that same gun and finds Lenny because at the very beginning of the film, he told Lenny where to hide if something bad happened. George, one more time, tells him about the beautiful dream of the farm they're going to have together. And when Lenny is looking off across the river saying he sees it, he finally really sees it, there it is, George shoots him in the back of the head and kills him. That's basically where the film should end. There's just a little bit of business about, like, and then George isn't arrested because the police officer apparently is like, yeah, fair enough. But I think honestly you could probably just end the film at that exact moment yeah it really is an unstoppable tragedy train <laughs> it's one of those things where when lenny killed her because i feel like everyone who's read the spark notes of this book knows that last scene like that knows how this ends i haven't even read the spark notes but i just like have existed in the world right so i've absorbed that 
Um, and so when Lenny accidentally kills her, I was looking at the timer and I was like, oh God, there's like almost 20 minutes left of this movie. And in that way, we're like, often that's a really bad sign in a 1930s movie of like, well, there's really only one plot beat left, right? And then, oh shit, look at how much of the movie is left. But it never feels that way through that last portion. Yeah. You are just like totally transfixed by everything that's happening during that part. And I honestly think because it's the part where he has the least dialogue, it's the best part of Burgess Meredith's performance by far. I think he does great work in that part and pretty much everybody's on all cylinders, at least partially because like almost everybody that's left is a really good actor doing... You know, there's that no small parts, only small actors thing of like, you've got to find your one moment and grab it as an actor. Everybody's one moment occurs in the last 10 minutes of this film. Big plot payoffs for almost every character that's like still alive happen in this very small space around all the other farmhands. And it's just really interesting and really good. I think the acting in this movie is fantastic. And maybe it's because, you know, the last thing I saw was that scene. But I remember thinking that earlier in the film as well. Particularly, I thought Lon Chaney was very good, or Lon Chaney Jr., I guess. And I thought that Lee Whipper, who was Crooks, was phenomenal. I mean, one, he's just a really good actor, but two... Crooks is a black character that we have not seen so far at all in the movies that we've watched. Yeah. He is not the kindly old black guy who's there for the convenience and comfort of the white people. He's just a human with like his own things that he wants to achieve or have in life. He has empathy that is informed by observation and not just because the script calls for him to feel empathetic toward white people. (laughs) And he's, again, sort of the reason I'm pointing to that Song of the South series is that like, it's sort of a myth that Song of the South was very of its time, because honestly, by 44, the winds had shifted so fast culturally against the representation in Gone with the Wind, which like got some protests, but was also a huge cultural phenomenon, but was also sort of like the only kind of a part a black actor could have to you don't have to play a mammy stereotype. So why are you around Hattie McDaniel? And I think it's because parts like this are just suddenly starting to very, very slowly. Right. Not like we do great in representation in Hollywood films just starting in 1940 or anything, but like that there start to be other options. And I think this is a really interesting example of like, God, this is the exact same year as Gone with the Wind, but they have so much more agency. They're allowed such a wider range of experience than any black character in that film is. Oh, yeah. I would say more than any black character that we've seen in any other movie so far. Yeah, for sure. But to be fair, the other movies were not in the same year. (laughs) Right. But like, it is wild that this comes out, what, like two months, less than two months after Gone with the Wind? Yeah, like two weeks after Gone with the Wind. Yeah, so it's filming at the same time, basically. And so you don't have to treat black characters like that. You can get it through the Hayes office. You can get it through the studio system and have have a black character who is not just subversively questioning 
Whites is actually openly saying, like, you guys are being dumb as shit and have them be right. It's a really interesting scene that I don't think would have jumped out to me if we weren't doing this project, you know? Right. I think I would have still thought it was a good scene, but I wouldn't have been like, holy shit, you're just allowed to do this? The way I was watching it. Yeah, I mean, he very directly takes on racism and segregation in a film in 1939. Yeah, and explains racism to him like he is a child. Yeah, which I feel like a lot of American moviegoers probably needed to hear that. Yeah. Again, I've been pretty down on Burgess Meredith, and I still have some stuff around Lenny that makes me feel kind of uncomfortable, but I don't think I'm going to be, like, giving this movie a horrible score or something. I am definitely not qualified to talk about representation of people with disabilities in film. So take what I'm about to say with that heap of salt. But I did think that Lon Chaney Jr.'s performance was good. It was very sympathetic. Lenny doesn't feel like he's actually helpless so much as George has decided he is helpless and that a lot of George's well-intentioned meddling is actually what ends up being the problem. That if he hadn't scared the shit out of him about, you know, don't talk to May, he wouldn't have freaked out in the same way. I think that's true. And I think the movie really, and and I do want to credit Lon Chaney Jr. with it, does go a pretty long way in explaining that, like, the real problem here is he can't get the support that he needs. Right. That there is just no option for that. It feels like a thing where Steinbeck maybe didn't really do his full due diligence on the research of how this actually works in the real world. It feels a little bit like he has a very sort of plot-dependent form of developmental disability. But again, I'm not an expert either, so I don't really want to go out on a limb and say for sure that's what's happening. It's just that's what kind of made me feel uncomfortable around it, and maybe I'm totally wrong and stupid. One thing that really jumped out at me, and maybe it's because we're recording this during Halloween week, was that there were a lot of parallels in tone in this movie to the 1931 Frankenstein. Yeah, that also definitely (laughs) occurred to me a few times. He doesn't know his own strength. Don't shock him. Don't surprise him. Right. But also, if you treat him like a human, maybe this wouldn't have happened instead of not treating him like a full person. Yeah. Which is definitely the case in Frankenstein. Also, they just kind of look similar. Like, Lon Chaney Jr. looks like Frankenstein out of makeup. Yeah. No offense to him. That wasn't intended as an insult. He's just a very large man. (laughs) He's just a big hulking dude with, like, kind of a rectangular head, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I don't have a whole lot else to say about it because, again, like, it's just a solid, competent movie, but it is not, from a film perspective, really all that exciting. No. Which is kind of understandable when you come to understand this was like mostly kind of a comedy studio that made this and that it was kind of a passion project by the director because he really liked the book and really wanted it to get made as a film. Mm. You can also kind of feel that in the like first 20 minutes, which are very stagey and very dedicated to the text in a way that I don't think harms the film necessarily, but definitely gives it a like 1930s extremely faithful adaptation vibe and probably could have been done a little more visually interestingly than it was. 
It just feels like a guy that maybe wasn't the best guy for the job directed a thing because he really wanted this movie to get made. And he's right that you should make a movie of this story. Well, the director for this actually is Lewis Milestone, who directed All Quiet on the Western Front. Then who am I? Who the hell am I thinking of? Maybe it's the... No, he also produced it. There was some long thing about how the studio was mostly known for its comedies. That doesn't mean that he necessarily was under contract to the studio. Oh, it's Hal Roach, the studio head of Hal Roach Studios, the production company. Oh, okay. Is the one who, generally speaking, had the experience doing comedies and was pushing toward wanting to do Of Mice and Men. Apparently they did get the right director, but the right director just was kind of boring. Well, or they got the right director, they didn't get the right cinematographer. So All Quiet on the Western Front has fantastic direction. The acting is is really brilliant. I think, I mean, as we talked about in that episode, it's not as well paced as this is, but also it wasn't written by Steinbeck. But the cinematography for All Quiet on the Western Front, which was Arthur Edison, I mean, still, for a lot of the movies that we've watched and we're now nine years past it, was so ahead of its time. I appreciate that movie more and more the further we get from it, probably because I haven't just watched it and sat through two hours of absolute hell. (laughs) Yeah. It's definitely one of the movies that feels more and more like, oh, there was something to sit with there. Because we usually record these very quickly after watching the film, like a day or two after. And it's one of the ones that did feel like, oh, like, I kind of wish I had a week or two to digest that film before we talked about it, which is not how I feel about, like, three smart girls or something. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think that time will be kind to our retrospective view of three smart girls. I mean, to be fair, we didn't dislike All Quiet on the Western Front. We just disliked the activity of watching All Quiet on the Western Front. (laughs) Right. Which I stand behind. Yeah, that's totally fair. Should we rate this movie, though? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm gonna... I think I'm gonna give it a six and a half. I was gonna go all the way up to a seven. So, yeah. um, I I mean, I think I was gonna say seven, but then I was like, well, but seven is usually what we give to, like, things that at least try something new and interesting. There's nothing wrong with something being workmanlike. I mean, I think it's trying something new and interesting. It's just trying something new and interesting on the story front. The stuff with crooks is new and interesting. There's new and interesting stuff to Of Mice and Men as a, like, story to be put on screen. That's true. It's just the cinematography isn't very interesting and the acting is kind of workmanlike, in my opinion. There's no tour de force performances here. It is not Jimmy Stewart in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It's totally solid acting that is appropriate to the movie and to the characters, in my opinion. I think May is, like, a little more obnoxious than she probably needs to be. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a scene with her where she's sitting at the dinner table and her husband and her father-in-law are eating and are making all of these horrible slurping and chewing noises, which is actually my version of hell. (laughs) And that is not unlike the scene in All Quiet on the Western Front with the shell shock, where like the scene goes on for longer than you feel like it should to get the point across, but it goes on long enough to get the point across and then also to make you, as the audience member, feel some of the emotion that the person in that situation is feeling. Milestone is good at that. Yeah. She, to me, is a lot more sympathetic than I had understood 
from just hearing about this story that she maybe is supposed to be or that people have interpreted her as being. I think she's kind of more annoying than she needs to be, but I think that is down to the text and not to the actress. It feels also like the director was kind of pushing in that direction, which I also think like, you know, I'm not really going to sit here and go like Burgess Meredith can't act like that's <laughs> that would be a lot. Yeah, I think that a lot of my problems with the acting in this movie are actually problems with the direction. It feels like Betty Field could have done a more grounded version of May and was really trying to. But there was a feeling of like, if she isn't irritating enough, you're not going to be sympathetic to Linny when he accidentally kills her. Or something. I, that that would be my guess as what was going on there. But similarly, the sort of staginess of the acting feels like a top-down direction decision. Kind of a dramaturgy direction decision. And not like, boy, they really got terrible actors for this. Because all of the actors are capable of good work, even like just within this film. I just didn't necessarily like the direction they went with a couple of the performances. Which is why I would probably say don't watch this movie, despite us having some fair number of positive things to say about it, and me not having a actual, this is the Of Mice and Men you should watch. I just, I don't quite think it's worth your time. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not saying, like, stay away from it. It's not one of those where it's like, oh, I've heard of that. Is it any good? My answer would be like, it's fine and not like oh dear god do not watch this film it is terrible yeah it's i i yeah you're right i guess we've never really had to make that distinction before no between don't watch this movie being like oh my god this is mildly torture don't do this to yourself and eh, if you're just doing a casual watch along with us maybe skip this one like you don't you maybe don't need it and it's definitely that kind of don't watch this movie is just like, eh, you could probably live your life without seeing this film and be fine. But I mean, you probably just read the book. It's like a short Steinbeck book. So, you know. Yeah. So to the nominees for this year, who won and who should have won instead, the winning film was Gone with the Wind. Yes. And we are solidly in agreement that it absolutely should not have been. No, for sure. The only nomination it even maybe should have got was Hattie McDaniels. And there's a decent case to be made that that was Hollywood trying to pat itself on the back for something it didn't actually do a very good job with. It's bad. It's it, it's bad in full color. It's bad in full color with interesting cinematography. And Clark Gable. And I think I would be able to forgive it slightly more as a pick if this wasn't the same year as Wizard of Oz. If there wasn't a non-racist version of the technical achievements being made here, sitting right there. Literally directed by the same person. Though Victor Fleming was apparently a Nazi? Oh. That's contested. Someone who was not his friend said that he was a Nazi. So, I, you know, I don't know. My pick is Wizard of Oz for best picture. So I've gone back and forth about this. Because while I think The Wizard of Oz is a better film... It's almost impossible to put within the context of the rest of the movies in this year. It's like it landed from outer space. And Mr. Smith Goes to Washington has problems that The Wizard of Oz doesn't have, but it also is trying for something a little bit more important. I, I don't I don't know. I, th I think. 
But I'm not sold on it actually not being the Wizard of Oz. I'm just saying that I'm having trouble making it definitely the Wizard of Oz because there's a little part of my brain that's like, well, but... So here's my counter argument. My counter argument is just Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is the winner of Oscar Best Picture. It's the oscar movie. Yes. And fuck that. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. That's also the part of my brain that's like, yeah, the part that's going, ah, shut up. That's that's you being Academy influenced. I think it is a more important in quote hands film than Wizard of Oz. It is hitting something more important, but it is also just a like broadly enjoyable populist film. It's just talking a lot about politics and American identity and and decency and corruption in washington and i think you know the big knock here is wizard of oz is a kids movie right like it is a narrative intended for children right those should get more oscars things that are not for a sophisticated adult audience quote unquote should get more oscars both because they do technically interesting things and because i think they do narratively interesting things that are often written off because they aren't important enough I think a movie that is teaching children to trust in yourself and be a responsible adult and, like, think about the dangers of the world and confronting them is as important as anything in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. We just kind of aren't trained to think of it that way. I'm sold. Okay. I do think Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, though, is an easy number two. Clearly, those two are kind of in a class of their own. Yeah, I mean, I think if I were putting them in order, it would be Wizard of Oz, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington as, like, not a super close second place, but, like, close. And then everything else, maybe, I can't believe I'm saying this, maybe Nanachka as a distant third? So my top five would be Wizard of Oz, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, probably Nanachka, Of Mice and Men as our fourth, and then kind of pick them for the fifth slot, and then again, go down to five slots. You don't need to nominate this many movies. I hate to tell you this, but they're not going to listen to us for five more years. <laughs> Fucking I- Four more years, four more years. <laughs> And I can't think of anything more useful to do with a time machine that lets me go back to 1939 than get the Academy Awards to skip back down to five nominees. But like every single year, it is more and more obvious that like you don't need to nominate this many movies. No, you don't. I mean, I think for me, my fifth would be Love Affair because it at least had some interesting visual things in it. And it had some it had some cute jokes. Whereas Gone with the Wind, Dark Victory, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Stagecoach, and Wuthering Heights for me were all just not worth anything to me. Can I be honest with you? This is not going to sound like me agreeing with you, but I forgot Love Affair existed, and that's maybe the best case for it being the fifth nominee. <laughs> that, that's what I'm saying, is like the other ones I remember not enjoying and Love Affair, I was like, yeah, I mean, there was some cute stuff in there. I forgot that that was even in this year. Yeah. Because usually when we forget a movie, it's not good at all, but wasn't so offensive as to stick in my brain forever. It was a cupcake. Yeah. So, yeah, it's Wizard of Oz, arguably. I I understand the case for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I wouldn't be mad at it in the alternate universe where it won. But, yeah, I think it's Wizard of Oz. And I think we, once again, don't even nominate the winner if we really had the option. 
I feel like certainly there's some other movie in 1939 that could fill that spot if we had to have Ted anyway. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure that I could find one pretty quickly. So next week, we start 1940 with another Steinbeck adaptation. Wait, we do? Yeah, so we're going to be watching The Grapes of Wrath. Okay. Boy, that's a weird one-two punch to have been out in cinemas less than a month apart from each other. The original, like, deep impact and whatever the uh, other fucking... Why am I blanking on the popular one? The one where Bruce Willis is an oil derrick guy that has to go into space to stop an asteroid. Is it called Armageddon? Yes. Yeah. I'm blanking on it because the name has nothing to do with the film. I was like, no, it can't be called that because it's not Armageddon. Yeah. But yeah, okay, whatever. Sure. Sure. It's Armageddon. Yeah. Also, there's just a good number of things to be excited about in this year because we got Our Town. We got Rebecca. We got Philadelphia Story. And, you know, like, I ain't mad at Grapes of Wrath. The Great Dictator. Oh, shit. I totally missed that. I was busy looking at Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, this is this is good. Yeah, there's some potential in this year. And then there's the other five, <laughs> as usual. Yep. Yeah. Until then, this was a little too much of a stage play, but was still a movie. Yeah. Still a movie. We will see you next week, everybody. Bye. Bye. We're gonna have a little place. <laughs> We're gonna have a little place. We're gonna have a cow and pig and some chickens. And then down on a flat, we're gonna have a field of alfalfa for the rabbits. And I get to tend the rabbits. Tend the rabbits. And we could live off the fat of the lamb. Let's keep looking across that river.